gentle listener. Welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I'm your host, uh, Ethan Bartlett. I forgot my name for a second. This is my <laughs> guest. Uh, who are you, Michael? Uh, Michael. I'm, I'm Michael Lilienthal. Thank you for saying my name so that I didn't forget my name. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh-huh. I just thought I wish someone would have done that for me uh, in yeah. the second that I forgot my name, so I just thought I'd do it for you. Um, you're doing unto me as you would have others do unto you. That's correct. Uh, mm. And while that's not inscribed in a mysterious stone buried beneath the Abbey of Thelema, it is a, still a very um, <laughs> important and relevant sort of religious point. Um, the, a way of life. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that said, gentle listener, um, we are... Wait, I should probably introduce mm-hmm. the scotch first. That was a great transition oh, yeah. into talking about Rabelais, but no, I haven't introduced the scotch. No. Um, for no. what amounts to, I think, the sixth week in a row, sixth or seventh, mm-hmm. certainly the, the second like month in a row, um, we have continuously and every day been drinking Ben Riach, the Smoky 12, which is a Speyside single malt scotch whiskey, three cask matured, 12 years of age, um uh created under the supervision of master blender rachel berry who as this is our third gargantuan panagruel episode uh rachel has seen us through seven episodes at this point um mm-hmm. to be eight yep. by the end of uh of this set of episodes mm-hmm. um she saw us through uh the fisherman and The one that you picked, uh, Michael, before the fisherman. Why can't I remember what it was? Oh, um, 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 um Jude. Yes, the Jude the Obscure. Um, yes. She saw us through that with Benriak the Twelve, and I got wind of the mm-hmm. fact that there was a the Smoky Twelve, and as Smoky Scotch is really my one and only weakness, um, I, <laughs> you know, felt the need to uh have us explore that this time um so you know what I could... we're saying now is rachel berry is like the unofficial godmother of the podcast i mean i feel like that was pretty clear within one or two episodes of benriatha 12 <laughs> um but yeah her her position has only been solidified uh this set of episodes <laughs> and i i was gonna make a remark before when i just sort of called her rachel about like sort of the parasocial <laughs> relationship thing that usually is not yes. like the podcast hosts with someone else it's usually someone else with the podcast hosts but um mm-hmm. as as you know we do in many other ways on this podcast we are breaking conventions and uh doing what mm-hmm. we want when we want um so right. don't tell our wives speaking of our wives uh let's have karen come in and read the rules Karen, please please come in and read the rules. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. 
Rule 4. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Uh, What a great rule reader you are. Um, Yeah, my wife was up north during the recording of this episode, so she had to uh, drive three hours down and, and, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, just read the rules for how, you know, whatever three minutes it took her to do that. And she's now headed back up north. So it's real dedication. I mean, you're going to. You're gonna cut out that three hours of waiting that we just did, right? So I mean, pro- probably. Otherwise, oh, okay. we're gonna do like the sort of an Andy Warhol truly art house film of a of a man sleeping. Mm. It's gonna be eight hours mostly of silence. Um, who knows? Who knows what we'll do? Um, All right. So, <laughs> I mean, the gentle listener will know based on seeing this in their podcast feed and and seeing whether it's you know five hours long or whatever but uh right um so anyway gentle (laughs) listener thank you for bearing with us through that three hours of silence um (laughs) and uh i think it's about time to pour the scotches clink the glasses and start talking about rabelais Mm -hmm. who would be very proud of us i think Oh, I'm going to read us all about that. Don't you worry. Good. Find <laughs> one for my wife, who has been lurking in the background, waiting for her her uh, just remit. I, I I won't say that she's pacing like a lioness, but um... is she seeking <laughs> whom she may devour? She's seeking uh, that which she may imbibe. <laughs> that's that's fair. Lachaim. <laughs> Slancha. <laughs> what did she say? Rude. <laughs> How did you know I compared her to the devil? <laughs> How did you know Ethan compared you to the devil? Don't ask her that. <laughs> oh, he didn't want me to ask you that. think you're funny <laughs> it's like she's never listened to the podcast i know yeah i mean what i know my expect? wife hasn't listened to the podcast so i don't know how much of a joke that Mine actually was regularly regularly listens to about half of each episode <laughs> <laughs> my half <laughs> oh yes through the walls when uh <laughs> Yeah, to be fair, my my wife does listen to my half in that way, which means sure. she gets to hear the uncut version with all of our fights. Um, 
Yeah, that's right, Nat. The truth comes out. Uh, we have been fighting this whole time. We just edit the podcast around it in order to like mm-hmm. preserve the idea that we're like friends who who work together well. Yeah, and are professionals and yeah, professionals of some sort. Um, some sort. It, I mean, you know, we have to have some amount of content so we can't make it seem like we're perfect professionals. <laughs> we wouldn't be able to if we tried. Um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, I. You know what okay. I want to talk about, Michael? What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about the third book of Pantagruel. The third book. I think I knew you were going to bring this one up. Um, now, why would you say that? Is it because we actually pretty thoroughly got through the first and the second book on our last set of episodes, and so that would be, like, the next logical place to go, or was there a different reason? I mean, that makes sense. Um, but, uh, this one, I think, from a little bit of the, um, extra-textual investigation that I've done, um... It seems to indicate that book three is that which sparks the most discussion. Sure. Um, That's interesting. Like, I don't disagree with that, but, like, I just... uh, Most of the reason that I was going to at least say for why I wanted to bring up the third book is that it is my personal favorite book. Um like i yeah there's there's like a lot of you know uh what am i trying to say there's a lot of there's there's a lot that i like in all five books of pantagruel including Mm -hmm. including the one that rabelais probably didn't write um you know and i love you know i love some of the we we kind of highlighted really in our first two episodes a lot of what i personally love about the first two books um between the thoughts on education, um, mm-hmm. Rabelais' general crankiness, um, the, you know, I don't know if we mentioned this specifically, but, like, one of my favorite bits of this entire set of set of books is, I believe it's Gargantua's search for the softest thing to wipe his butt with after uh, pooping, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as well as, like, the Abbey of, of Thelema and and some of that stuff um you know and then in the later books there's plenty of plenty of uh um stuff that i like but specifically in the third book like i don't know i feel like and maybe this is related to what you've seen michael about like the third mm-hmm. book pro- provoking the most discussion i feel like rabelais kind of hits his stride in this book because i feel like Panagruel, the first published book, is him just, like, trying something to see if it works. And then Gargantua is him kind of, like, doing Panagruel again, but, like, having a better idea of what he's actually doing and what works for his reading public. Yeah. Um, so, as much as there is great stuff in both of those volumes, book three is, like, almost where he hits his stride to me. Um, mm. Whereas book four seems, like, a little bit, like... Uh, book three of i am a cat where it's like okay i guess i'm still writing this um (laughs) yep and you know book five just feels to me very incomplete like i tend to believe Mm -hmm. that there's some rabelais in it i also tend to believe that there's uh, some writer other than rabelais in it that somehow you know 
we have at least two writers who got published as one um we'll we'll get to more about that i think when we yeah we can talk more of that later um so i i guess i i do feel like who knows what the fifth book might have been the fifth book might have been a masterpiece but you know i think just sure rebelay either died or gave up <laughs> on it too soon to <laughs> to tell um so to me like the third book really is like just just like the real um you know the the tender juicy meat at the heart of this book um Mm -hmm. and if you don't like that metaphor just uh don't think about it too much um Mm -hmm. i do want to read um just a bit of the prologue of uh book three um please do and i'm mostly doing this just because i like it so much um maybe have one or two points to make from it and maybe it'll generate some other discussion obviously michael you know if you if anything occurs to you please please uh jump in um but this is this is uh the prologue of the third book of pantagruel as translated by ma screech um uh, again, I'm reading M.A. Screech's modern translation. Michael is reading Thomas Urquhart and Peter Mateau's uh, mm-hmm. much older but very influential translation. So here's from Screech, uh, prologue of book three. Good people, most shining drinkers and you most becarbuncled sufferers from the pox. Have you ever seen Diogenes the Cynic Philosopher? If you have... <laughs> Either you had never lost your sight, or else I have truly quitted my intelligence and logical sense. A fine thing it is to see the sparkle of wine and golden crowns, I mean, of the sun. I appeal to the man born blind, made so famous by the holy scriptures. He was given the option of choosing anything he liked by the command of him who is almighty and whose word is in a flash put into effect. All he asked for was his sight. Um, (laughs) and this is really like just just sort of the prologue to the prologue like this is rebel a nope. table setting in an extremely eccentric way um <laughs> but i just love like to me this is the passage where Rabelais most clearly travels forward in time um and plagiarizes from lauren stern and uh, tristram shandy like it's a very shandian passage um Mm-hmm. It, it's just i don't know something about it i don't even know if i can explain it properly it's it's just so delightful um mm-hmm. i guess you know even if we just do like a close reading like good people most shining drinkers and you most be carbuncled sufferers from the pox so like carbuncled sufferers from the pox like these are either the poor or those ridden by venereal disease like as I understand, mm-hmm. the pox was usually venereal disease. Um, sure. The the carbuncles are are you know sort of the warty, uh, uh, you know, warty sort of symptoms of the of the venereal disease right. in this. Um, uh, Ur- Urquhart translates that bit right there. You thrice precious gouty gentleman. <laughs> so maybe Urquhart either you know could be like a. You know, he didn't have access to the best dictionaries, or it could be that for his audience, he was sort of muting a, a reference specifically mm-hmm. to sex in a, you know, um, uh, in sort of a, a nod to good taste. 
Um, right. But I just, I uh, just taking, taking uh, um, the idea that Rabelais, the Catholic monk, is mm-hmm. starting off and valuing as his readers uh, suffers from the pox um, and most shining drinkers. Um, mm-hmm. It's just very, it's hilarious. It's also very, uh, um, in in what we've talked about from from Bakhtin and from Rabelais and his world, very um, uh, oh, what's the word? Um, very carnival esque, right? Very mm, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the, the the spirit of carnival that that Bakhtin sees as permeating Rabelais is is definitely evident even just in that sentence, and that's just the first clause. After which he goes on to ask us about Diogenes, the cynic philosopher. Um, now, invoking mm-hmm. Diogenes is a is a very interesting idea oh, because just fantastic, um, you know. And there's there's probably a lot we could unpack there, especially if we if we compare Diogenes mm-hmm. against like the text as a whole, either the third book or mm-hmm. the entire you know five book set. Um, but specifically, again, in this idea of Carnival, Diogenes was perhaps the best symbolically best um representation of the idea of carnival and the high made low and the low made high uh diogenes considered one of the greatest of classical philosophers who of course lived in a barrel and um uh you know just popped out of it to ridicule the the high and mighty and demand cookies um anytime mm-hmm. that he that he saw anyone pass by um like i think i've i i could be like i could be perpetuating a, a falsehood here i think i have heard that cookie monster from sesame street was inspired by diogenes um that's amazing again i don't know if it's true it it really ought to be true if if it's not it it should be yeah <laughs> It makes sense, right? Um, um, and and either way, really, you know, Di- Diogenes is one of the famous anecdotes about him that I know is from Herodotus. It may be from some other places as well. Is that mm. um, Alexander the Great? You know, the mm-hmm. the in his day the greatest conqueror that like his world had ever known uh, was a big fan of Diogenes and specifically sought Diogenes out and you know basically wanted mm-hmm. to make friends with him and found diogenes like lying on a garbage heap or something and he's uh, lying in the shade or something no or no, 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 no 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 because that's yep, that's slightly around. later in this yep. anecdote I, he was yep. he was somewhere he was not somewhere that like alexander the great would normally go um right. and uh alexander found him and was pointed towards him and and you know walked up to him and said sir can i do anything for you and diogenes said yes you can move about three feet that way because you're blocking my light um yep (laughs) and you know um if you want to if you want to like start listening to a much more intelligent podcast than ours um go listen to the history of philosophy podcast uh yes and the the specifically the episode about diogenes in that podcast is like fantastic episode it's like one of the greatest episodes of podcasts that i've ever encountered um 100 true you know so so yeah like more context can be gained 
first there, you know, and then probably reading almost anybody um, intelligent mm-hmm. about Diogenes. But again, just in this one sentence, we're like invoking so many of these these ideas of carnival, these ideas of of the high made low and the low mm-hmm. made high. Um, so he, you know, Rabelais says, "Have you ever seen Diogenes as a cynic philosopher?" Uh, if you have, either you have never lost your sight, or else I have truly quitted my intelligence and logical sense. So, like, it's almost a dad joke. It's almost like, hey, have you seen Diogenes? Yeah, like, no. have you read Diogenes and then taking this to this very literal jokey place? Um, well, that means you've got eyes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And also, like, on the other hand, I don't know. I, I wonder if the you'd never lost your sight is some kind of ref, reference back to, like, the venereal disease thing. Like you know mm, vd sometimes okay. you you lose your lose your uh... yeah syphilis specifically isn't it yeah i think so that sounds that, that sounds right yeah um uh yeah so uh i don't know there's you know there's there's just a lot in there but it's it's just mm-hmm. uh it's well and bringing in this this reference to the the man born blind um and like could have asked anything from the almighty just asked that he might see seems itself to be backwards referencing to diogenes oh sure making that request of alexander like, yes. just get out of my light just let me see yeah <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same thing yes um, um you know again like i didn't have a, a whole lot of like agenda in quoting this but maybe it's no. good for us to do this a little bit of this close reading because it like this text is so dense in english and like uh-huh screech goes out of his way to point out that there are like a lot of puns in this text that like as close as mm-hmm. french and english are linguistically like screech cannot translate them and frankly if screech cannot translate them i don't know that any of the rest of us have any kind of hope um right so you know there's stuff in here that in the french would also be here you know even the the second paragraph of this introduction. Now you two are not young, which is a necessary quality for mesophi- metaphysically uh, philosophizing in vine parenthesis not in vain, and for attending from henceforth mm-hmm. the council of Bacchus, there not to lop and dine, but to opine about the matter, color, bouquet, excellent, excellence, eminence, peculiarities, powers, virtues, effects, and dignity of Piot, our hallowed and beloved wine. Like, mm-hmm. again, you know, I'm sure that Screech is, like, probably a master of probably both English and French, I would I would guess. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. he renders so much there, but it's like, there's so much there as far as alliteration and of reference and um, mm-hmm. so forth. Um, so in the third paragraph of this introduction, uh, Rabelais says just what amounts to... But if you haven't seen Diogenes, you've probably heard of him. Um, And then Mm -hmm. in the fourth paragraph, he says, Unless I deceive myself, you are all of Phrygian extraction, and even though you do not have as many golden coins as Midas had, you do have something of of his which the Persians used used to appreciate in their Atticusts, and which the emperor Antoninus also desired, that which gave its nickname to the serpentine canon of Rohan, big ears um now there's there's like a lot there that i don't necessarily understand but even from what i do what's that yeah no i'm agreeing with you like i don't understand the whole train of thought there but um 
I can I can reach the the final station. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, in in the uh, uh, Screech's introduction to this prologue, uh, um, he mentions that uh, many thought that the French were descended from the Phrygian Francus, son of Hector. Um, okay. Persian Odocusts, Oda, the word I stumbled over before. Eavesdroppers mm-hmm. or spies were already linked with the legend of Midas's long ears by Erasmus. Okay. Um, so it's like, you know, to me it was like, okay, the Phrygian thing is obviously something, but, yeah. you know, we're talking about golden coins, which um, goes back a couple, uh, uh, where was it? A couple paragraphs. Um, oh, back to that first paragraph. A fine thing it is to see the sparkle of wine and gold, wine and golden crowns. I mean, of the sun. You know, mm-hmm. it's this very dense, elusive train of thought that, like, probably made more sense to an educated person in 16th century France than it does to us, especially on like a a first reading without any assistance. But it's also like you have to imagine that you know someone reading this at that time would be roughly similar to someone reading like Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow in whenever it was published, I want to say 77, where it's like, yeah, sure. you're in the moment, but like the density of illusions and like the, the train of thought and, you know, all of that is still mm. potentially dizzying, especially if you're not reading carefully and closely and intelligently. Um, mm-hmm. Uh and and so here uh i had forgotten this um at the end of the fourth paragraph of this this prologue nevertheless although alexander the great had aristotle as his private tutor it is diogenes the Sinopian, whom he held in such high regard that if he could not have been alexander he would have wanted to be diogenes mm-hmm. um and then of course the the very next paragraph when Philip, king of Macedon, undertook to besiege Corinth and reduce it to rubble, um, he goes on to quote what I think is is sort of some uh, um, riffing on Herodotus. But of course, uh, Philip of Macedon um, is the father of Alexander the Great. So like that's like part right. of the train of thought. But he's also doing this. You know, if you go down a few uh, paragraphs. Um, you see Diogenes mentioned again. Uh, so he's he's sort of extending this whole this whole metaphor, you know, um, metaphor or just like set of thematic illusions. Um, and I am definitely not prepared to like explicate this whole prologue. No. Um, but you know, again, just like this is part of what i love about rabelais is like he seems endless it's like part of what i love and also part of what i hate about rabelais is like he seems like endlessly sort of explicable in the sense that like yeah you can constant you can probably constantly reread chapters passages paragraphs sentences and like get new stuff out of them or get you know become amused by them in a completely different way than you ever had before no matter how many other times you had Mm -hmm. read a given passage absolutely it's both marvelous and infuriating yes yes that's exactly the the reaction to have to this yep 
Yeah. Um, but anything you yeah, want. Yeah, this whole prologue is all about Diogenes, really. Yes. Right? Like, um, yeah, all of the what, other what characters stood out to me, are supporting characters, yeah. basically. Exactly. But it's all about Diogenes. I mean, he shows up consistently throughout, all the way to the end of the prologue. Um, and something that stood out to me that, that maybe references that I caught here to Diogenes in the context of Diogenes is um, uh, he says, well, the, the last paragraph in, in Pynchon's translation takes up a page and a half. Um, but towards the end of, of that last paragraph, he says, hence mastiffs, dogs in a doublet, get you behind aloof villains out of my sunshine. So there's that. <laughs> Curse to the devil, do you yes. jog hither, wagging your tails to pant at my wine and piss my barrel. Um, so all of that. And like he, he just keeps trying to shoo away dogs and then he himself uh like goes grr 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 <laughs> growls at them which uh, it strikes me as a, a reference to uh the cynics mm-hmm. of whom diogenes was one because they got that name by being called dogs sure so that's <laughs> yeah i don't know I, again, like you, I don't know that I had any particular point on on that. No, that's that's like, very interesting. Things I'm sure. noticing. Yeah. Um. So to me, like the most, just I I guess just like the funniest, most interesting, I thing about this book is that mm-hmm. it doesn't really have a plot, and. It doesn't mm-hmm. really have a plot, even if you take as your baseline for what a plot is, the plot of Pantagruel and then Gargantua, which is, right by modern standards, already not that much of a plot. Um, mm-hmm. But the idea that uh, essentially this book is um, first Panurge... Uh, sort of problematizing the entirety of capitalism before capitalism is truly invented and codified. (laughs) Um, Like, in the same way that Karl Marx uh, said that Timon of Athens proved that Shakespeare was a Marxist, uh, I think (laughs) that um, book three of Pantagruel would, to Karl Marx's mind, uh, prove that... uh, uh, Rabelais was also a Marx- Marxist. Um, mm-hmm. uh, am I quickly googling to? Yeah, okay. I was gonna say, am I quickly quickly googling to make sure I had that Marx Shakespeare reference correct? And yes, I mm-hmm. I googled Timon of Athens Shakespeare Marxist, and the first you know how Google does these like pull quotes now, where it's just like showing you the first thing that it thinks it just quotes the first thing that it thinks will answer the thing you want um Mm -hmm. google did a poll quote from the conversation.com uh Mm -hmm. something about shakespeare's time in of athens um the poll quote is shakespeare mark said excellently depicts the real nature of money um (laughs) and i i suspect that you know the first Again, at least in my edition, the first eight chapters or so of book three, um, Marx would probably say that Rabelais depicts the the real nature of money. Um, mm-hmm. 
However, I think there are variant readings available um, that have to do with the rest of the book. Um, and uh, part of that has to do with just the fact that most of the rest of the book, after we've sort of berated Panurge and for like having an unrealistic view of money and Panurge sort of defends himself in what I can only assume is mm -hmm. sort of sort of a a uh, ode or gloss upon the sophists um <laughs> the i i'm i'm flipping through the third book now just looking at chapter yep. titles and gosh yeah um again chapter titles vary based on different variants so like even michael you might even uh um have different mm -hmm. numbers than i do but sure uh at very least through chapter 48 in my edition um arguably through literally the end of the book um chapter 48 was originally chapter 45 but uh okay at least through that chapter it, it, this book is basically about panners trying to decide whether he should marry um yep and that is like i'm just you know doing doing book math um which is always the most interesting kind of math but in my edition mm -hmm. uh the third book starts at the f at page 400 which has a couple of like shout outs to patrons and stuff like that before going into the prologue we've quoted um chapter mm -hmm. nine starts on page 442 chapter 48 starts on page 593 and then the end of the book is page 614 so the parts of the book that are not uh panage deciding whether to marry is whatever 21 plus about 40 is so like 61 pages um and then the parts of the book that are panage deciding whether to marry is like 150 pages um uh -huh. so you know it's it's really the bulk of this book and just it's just this like almost like a catalog of different ways that one could try to decide a very important thing in one's life i guess um mm -hmm. panard first seeks advice from pantagruel he then uh at least flirts with the idea of using dice for lots um mm -hmm. panagruel is of course against that but urges panurge to uh use dreams as a as essentially a div what we'd call a divination um mm -hmm. we interpret some of panurge's dreams uh chapter 15 is called the excuse of panurge and an exegesis of a monastical kabbalah concerning salted beef so you know we, there's definitely some digressions um mm -hmm. but then chapter 17 is again in mine is uh how panurge talks with the sibyl of panzust um mm -hmm. you know so again it's just like all of these different ways that like a person can try to decide whether to get married and i don't know i yeah. i don't know why it delights me so much but like 
uh, I don't know. I mentioned in, in uh, I think, part one of this series, and I know I've mentioned it other times on this podcast, that, like, the tradition, the novelistic tradition that delights me the most, um, just on an instinctive sort of gut mm-hmm. level, is the one that, like, does not follow the whole three-act structure, Chekhov's gun concept. Like, the farther away we right. can get from sort of a well-made story, the more just delightful I find something. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that I don't like, I mean, Chekhov or, you know, um, uh, Jane Austen or any of any number of, of very well-made story practitioners, but, like, I don't know, you know, the even the novels we've had on this podcast and especially the ones that have been driven on by driven by me you know don quixote um tristram shandy uh uh you know this this book um even i am a cat i'm not i'm not trying to claim mm-hmm. exclusive credit for bringing those novels <laughs> michael but like you know the, no, those are some no. of the ones that are most delightful to me and they're all what so uh, uh, a friend of mine once described as novels about nothing yeah um, in the sp- sense that they take a lot of pages to not get to a point and something about not mm-hmm. getting to a point is just delightful to me right michael do you have anything to say about this or should we move on well um possibly so yes this whole this whole thing about debating whether or not he should get married which you could boil down to the quote-unquote plot of book (laughs) three is panners trying to decide whether he should get married or not right that's what drives the action so to speak right and it is the book out of the entirety of the series of books the the quintet of gargantuan pantagruel that i think could almost wholesale be lifted out and inserted into things like don quixote (laughs) or tristram shandy or even i am a cat it's it's a set of uh you know just change some of the names around uh and it fits you know just fine into all of those now that you say that like some of the later books of Tristram Shandy, specifically the ones in which Uncle Toby is contemplating mm-hmm. proposing to the widow mm-hmm. Wadman. Yep. I could see that's a, exactly what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, I could of. see a real argument that that's just Tristram Shandy it's just a, book a couple three hundred years of... later doing and in English doing, you know, book three of Rabelais. Um Yep. I obviously yep. don't know all of the details about whether stern would have read rabelais and and blah 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 but like seems likely urquhart's edition would right just given how influential rabelais is yeah and um, urquhart's edition comes out whatever 50 60 years before tristram shandy mm -hmm. does like yeah seems very possible Mm -hmm. right well and there's the this interesting feature too not to make this the uh, comparison podcast between Tristram Shandy and Gargantian Pantagruel, which itself could be uh, another thesis paper. <laughs> um, but uh, another striking um, similarity, uh, I, I don't think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but uh, the fact that both are written by churchmen. Sure. Uh, 
Um, and both are novels, you know, largely about nothing. Right. That kind of get the churchmen into trouble. Trouble. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really great point. And I mean, you know, there's obviously, uh, you know, churchmen were tended to be educated, tended to be literate, tended mm-hmm. to be well read. Um, all of which is going to make you more likely to produce a text. So, like, right, you know, there could be sort of some... There's a correlation without necessarily causation. Without necessarily causation, but man, does I, do I want there to be causation somehow. Like, right. some, some related... Right. I don't know, like... Again, I think you just there's, said this. There's got to like, be a, a law of the observer for this. You know, <laughs> if the observer wants there to be causation, there's causation. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Again, I think you just said this, but like, this seems like a thesis, you know, idea. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you'd have to prove that there was a, a, a an identical causation, but certainly the, the comparison right. um, seems like it would be fruitful. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. No, I, I love that uh, a lot. There, there's some research to be done there, anyway. I think, or even like, um, you know, all, literary... all I really need is for someone to find evidence of um, Lawrence Stern's library containing a copy of Rabelais. I would guess we could probably do that. Re- like, if either of us had access to JSTOR, I bet we could figure that out right now. I don't think right? we should necessarily <laughs> because we do this podcast in real time. And, like, we already made everyone wait for three hours while my wife drove down from northern Wisconsin. Um, Yeah, we can't make it any longer. Yeah. We just can't do it. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. 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 Um, So, okay. uh, Not to to try to uh, assign a point to the book. Um, I think you would be shot. Uh, Right? (laughs) But I am wondering um, whether there is and what it would be uh, a connection between all the Diogenes stuff in the prologue and Panurge's desire or questioning whether he should or not get married. Between what in the Uh, prologue? Say say that part again. Diogenes. All the Diogenes stuff. Um, I mean, like the 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 one thing that's occurring to me yeah. is the uh, council of the philosopher. Sure. Um. But I don't I don't know if there's any direct connection even there. I mean, I don't know. To me, it it smacks of. Uh, have you ever seen the Coen Brothers film A Serious Man? No, I've not. Um, it's a wonderful film. I've only seen it once 12 years ago, and I've been meaning to rewatch it since. But, um, so this film starts with, like, what amounts to, like, a 20-minute or so short film um, that, as I recall, is set in, like, a Jewish shtetl uh, hmm. in the, you know, in the 1800s. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking this up so I don't get it wrong. Yeah. Uh, so quoting directly from Wikipedia, a Jewish man in a 19th century Eastern European shtetl tells his wife that he was helped on his way home by Reb Groshkover, whom he has invited in for soup. Um, and it's basically this D-book 
Dubuk, I don't know how to say that word necessarily, mm, uh, mm-hmm. story. Um, this, uh, uh, you know, sort of ghost in Jewish mythology and folklore. Um, right. And, and then the rest of the story takes place in, like, the 1960s, I think, in, uh, um, in Minneapolis. And in, in you know the, the in um yeah nineteen sixty seven in uh in Minnesota um mm-hmm. like and it it doesn't seem to have anything directly to do with that prologue um sure and like I remember watching some of like the the documentary features or the special features on the dvd of this film um which i don't usually do like i usually intend to watch special features on a dvd and i usually end up (laughs) accidentally not doing it um right unless there's a really pressing question that i have uh sure and in this case the really pressing question was wtf um like what is this prologue and how does it relate to the rest of the movie and i had been online and there were you know people talking about thematic uh connections and like both films because i think in the main film the wife uh of the the main character like wants a divorce and that's very sudden for the main character or something um and uh Mm -hmm. um you know so there's like there's like parallels with like the wife in each case you know being being betraying and and stuff um but like in the the only part again at least that i saw of the dvd special features that uh joel and ethan cohen were asked about this they were like well the script was a little short so we wrote this other short film um to make the script long enough to like sell as a like put it out as a feature film like that was the only answer (laughs) that they would give um and you know i know this this uh this response maybe seemed longer loopier and more digressive than uh um might be expected but like i think if you questioned rabelais I think he would give a similar answer where he was just like, I don't know. I had to fill some pages and I had to introduce the book somehow. Um, Sure. But in the, but like what this actually dovetails with is a long running theory. I have that great artists don't actually know why their art works as well as it does. Um, Sure. And that like Rabelais would say that in the same way that Joel and Ethan Cohen definitely said that, but like, when you're operating on the the subconscious levels that like art you know to use sort of a broad definition of art that art does operate on it's like there's so many like subconscious parallels and things going on that like you know the artist can't necessarily Mm -hmm. be trusted if they say oh no that's that wasn't there that was just completely unrelated Mm -hmm. um so i think that like the parallels probably are there between because like what from what you said just now michael and by just now i mean 17 minutes ago when i started this digression 
Um, <laughs> the thing that struck me most was the idea of the philosophical advisor. Um, sure. Especially, but, like, there's an interesting question there because, like, in the characterization, in, in as much as either in, any figure in these books can be can be analyzed as a character in sort of a modern novelistic sense um the characterization of panurge is much more diagenic much more diagenical what diagenical yeah i'll go with that much more diogenes like than uh than panagruel um even though Panagruel is acting as the advisor and Panurge is acting more as the Alexander. Um, sure. And especially from the previous books, you know, Panagruel is much more uh, the Alexandrian figure as like a ruler and a conqueror and so forth. Um, sure. So I think there's an interesting But maybe set the of... roles have been reversed as Alexander wants. Alexander wanted them to be as Alexander wanted them to be, and as Bakhtin would have us believe, um, the spirit of Carnival requires. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I guess this, in some ways, is just a long way of saying like I think you're probably onto something. Um, sure. Like the and in, in some of the outer details, it would seem to have no relation because um, the philosopher that is consulted, uh, whose name is. Trilogan, yeah, Trilogan, sure, um, is explicitly called a Pyronian philosopher, uh, which is different from diagenical cynicism, right? Um, but again, like uh, there's similarities. I mean, all but... I'm all I'm gonna say is like to say that uh, you know. To call this person a philosopher in this text doesn't necessarily mean that yep. the author thinks of them as either an actual philosopher or an ideal philosopher. Right, and it, it, he turns into sort of a um, caricature of a philosopher, exactly. too. Um, and it's, I mean, their whole dialogue, it's in chapter 36 in my uh, translation, yeah. is just, oh, it's so funny. Yeah. Um, um, which, of course, is... it's just frustrating to Panners. <laughs> yes. And of course, that's you know, certainly getting after Plato. Um, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, Definitely. As, well, the structure of it is like in the form of a dialogue. Uh, but specifically, um, as I remember, anyway, it's it's in the form of like a Socratic dialogue that that Plato yes. you know, tended towards. Um, that said, I think in the I'm trying to page through quickly, um, maybe in the introduction to Screech's edition cites a different source okay um first of all as something i meant to mention at some point during this uh exchange yeah. is that um screech actually says uh a that the third book is rabelais masterpiece of philosophical comedy um okay but also at some point and i'm trying to find it quick to just quote it you know verbatim but we can't. At some point, he also calls it um, uh, the most challenging book of uh, hmm. uh, Rabelais. At the same time, I think he uh, either says or implies that it's also often considered the most satisfying. Um, hmm. So, 
you know, there, there's all of that. Uh, what I was going to say, though, is... Now, here I'm quoting Screech directly from his introduction. Um, in form and matter, it, as in the third book, is an elegant, learned, comic Renaissance work. It, too, has a book behind mm -hmm. it. Lucian's, to one who said to him, you are a Prometheus in words, in which Lucian defends his fusion of dialogue with comedy. Before him, dialogue hmm. was the domain of philosophy, not laughter. <laughs> nice. So, you know, there is there is that. I don't know. I, I personally, like, again, probably partly because of my own uh background and, and preconceptions like i fast forward as far as like huck finn and jim having sort of proto sure. proto socratic dialogues uh in mm -hmm. in the adventures of huckleberry finn there are certainly passages where they're floating down the raft and and they're having these like quote-unquote logical exchanges that in that book you know very much feels like like a satire of of plato but sure. you know, again, Twain is is very much. Twain was incredibly well read. I can, I can hardly believe that he did not encounter Rabelais in some form or some translation. Possibly sure. Urquhart. Um, you know, yeah. possibly. That, I mean, there were several nineteenth-century translations. I think into English, some of which were better than others, uh, as sure. I understand. Um, you know, so I, you know, whether whether uh, Twain's use of Socratic dialogue or philosophical dialogue is Rabelaisian, Lucianian, Platonic, or some right. combination of all three, I don't claim to know for sure, but um, sure. it's an interesting It, it strikes me that um, I, I don't want to deny the claim wholesale because I'm sure there's a lacuna in the history, but I'm thinking back to Aristophanes, the clouds mm. where he has, you know, Socrates in, in dialogue in a comedic fashion. Um, right. I think, uh, I think the difference would probably be that um, Aristophanes is just sort of aping for the sake of satire. Right. As opposed to using a genre um, right, that had been used previously for philosophy and using it for comedy, and, like the distinction. Right, and it's, it's different there. from a simple dialogue to a play, right? Right, like the clouds is a play, but Plato's Republic is a dialogue. Right. There are similarities, but they are different genres entirely. Right, where this, and again, you know, depending especially on how you use the words and so forth, like. There's a lot of overlap here, and it pro anyone could be forgiven for thinking it's a confusing and b pedantic, but sure, um, yeah, it's almost like Aristophanes is translating something into a different genre, whereas Rabelais is it, again, at least if Screech is correct, is sort of following Lucian in using the same genre for a different end. Right, repurposing it. Yeah, <laughs> while still maybe um, retaining some yeah. of the some of the purposes of the original genre. Right. You know, would Rabelais right. say I'm doing philosophy through the lens of comedy, or would he say I'm doing comedy through the lens of philosophy? You know, or would mm. he maybe say that that's that distinction is oh. is a 
useless or or void or something i don't know i'm just you know, yeah I think something like that the questions there are more Stop. interesting than the answers right would he just say just go have a drink <laughs> would he just say you're trying too hard yeah right stop trying too hard <laughs> it's a callback i sometimes feel like a um, lot of um the authors that we discuss on this show would say that in a lot of contexts in response to our questions right yeah right <laughs> um the the one other uh thought that like relates to all of this is so in chapter 36 you've got that dialogue with the philosopher and then the very next chapter is pantagruel telling panners to uh take the advice of a fool so he's had these like four other advisors and now it's like you know what let's go to a fool yeah (laughs) um Um, which i i I think in some senses diogenes takes the role of a fool yeah oh absolutely Um, diogenes very much takes the role of the fool and like so i think almost creates the idea of the fool that like right the middle ages a little bit of a proto fool pick up on yeah right right Sorry, were you... So, I, I, there, there's another connection. That's yeah. just... Yeah. Well, and, and again, that's that's connected to Bakhtin and the whole um, uh, uh, Carnival aspect. Carnival, like, one of the chief attractions of Carnival was the Fools. I think we mentioned in one mm. of these episodes um, another mm-hmm. very Carnival-based work of literature being... Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which features the Feast of Fools right. very prominently. So it's like, you know, again, if if Rabelais was trying to, like, just put evidence straight into Bakhtin's lap in favor of the idea of this being sort of a carnival-based work, like, that chapter or set of mm-hmm. chapters could not do a better job. Um, right. Yeah, so there's there's that as well. So it's like... You know, and I mean, I think Rabelais very much, very consciously positions himself as a fool um, many times mm-hmm. and in many ways. Yes, absolutely. So, in like his n- narratorial insertions and prologues and all of that, he he casts himself in a very foolish light. Yeah, which you know. Again, not to bring up Shakespeare yet again as, like, an author who probably has nothing directly to do with Rabelais. Um, But, you know, if you compared the idea of the fool in Rabelais with Shakespeare's fools, I think it would almost seem like they were, you know, writing from the same playbook, as it were. Like, Mm -hmm. very, you know, especially King Lear's fool. um, Yes. As well as fools in in some of Shakespeare's other plays is very similar in the sense of like uh, being that Diogenes kind of a you know the lowest person but also the wisest person and the person who uh, to borrow a modern cliche speaks truth to power when no one else will or even can. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot there again assigning. Mm-hmm uh high level english term papers or even graduate theses theses like shakespeare's <laughs> fools and rabelais concept of the fool would be a great you know a great study i think definitely yeah Ooh. Mm-hmm. i'd read that paper <laughs> i would do um mm-hmm. michael is there anything you need to say 
uh, yet in this specific episode because we are very quickly running up against our time. I I don't think so. Uh, you know, there are plenty of other commentators and writers who have discussed um, a lot of this segment, you know, as we're talking about book three particularly um, yeah. of Rabelais in a lot more uh, eloquent fashion than I could. And anything I would say would just be a riff on them at this point. Yeah, I mean, all we're doing, even though we're spending four hours on Rabelais, like all we're really doing is basically sort of saying like, here are some thoughts you might have going into reading this book for the first time or for <laughs> however the however many time. Um, right. But please, cons- if you're really interested, please consult people who are much smarter than we are, which amounts to basically everyone who has ever sat down to try to analyze or write about <laughs> this book. Um, right. right. I don't think I'm being too humble in, in positioning ourselves in that exact spot. No. Uh, that's a good spot (laughs) not that that's not the spot we're in pretty much all the time but like even more so in this case Mm -hmm. um all right now that said uh i believe that brings us to the end of this episode um Mm -hmm. michael has still failed to uh volunteer as tribute and by that i mean lose the podcast Mm -hmm. um so Please feel free to read along as we finish up Gargantua and Pantagruel. Um, you can contact us with your thoughts, your feedback about this book or any other book that we've covered um, in the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Go ahead and put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Um, we are also at Room with Scotch on Twitter. You can get us there. Um, we are in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook request to join we will let you in unless you are alexander the great not wearing a barrel instead of pants um (laughs) we will do your homework there's a form at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast uh we won't do it well you should not turn it in unless you want to go to plagiarism jail but um Mm -hmm. you know we will make it fun if it's interesting enough uh we will potentially make a whole episode about it this could be past homework current homework future homework um really the whole timey-wimey wibbly-wobbly spectrum uh if you like this show Mm -hmm. uh check out our other shows um we have intermission our uh backstage audio drama podcast we have us play fiasco our fiasco rpg improv real play podcast we have Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. Um, we also have Freddy Goes to a Podcast, which might be the most directly similar to this one. That's the one where three grown men read a children's novel series from 100 or so years ago called uh, the Freddy the Pig books, which get progressively wilder as the series goes on. <laughs> um Michael, where can they find you? Anything you want to promote? What's what's up with you right now? Yeah, I am on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Uh, and uh, as I've mentioned before, if you go to the DMs Guild uh, and search for my name, you'll find some uh, Dungeons & Dragons adventures that I've written. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'm on Twitter at Bjartlet. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Um... And that said, until next time, just remember, 
it's our party and we'll cry if our wife cuckolds us or doesn't cuckold us thanks mm-hmm. for listening bye it's a real catch 22 <laughs> uh, we, we haven't done that book yet so you can't reference it i know <laughs> bye, bye. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours. yours.